1 Corinthians 9. Once you find 9, go to 19. <laughs> okay, 919. Please stand and read with me. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, through not though myself not being under the law, so that I may win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may be by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that uh, this scripture today penetrates the hearts of our people. This passage is critical to the survival and the thriving and the growth of your church. I pray that we take these words and embrace them and rearrange our lives underneath the authority of what you wrote. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So as you can tell, we're back in our sermon series on the life lessons from Corinth. And um, clearly, we've come to a close on the teaching on spiritual gifts. Uh, and we're heading into a new topic, which is evangelism. Now, let me give you a quick definition of what evangelism is. And this was, I think it's important to define it because this is a really interesting story that happened to me in Israel. I was in Israel, and uh, we got uh, Peter Fast, who was the tour guide of the whole thing, and he's uh, related, obviously, to Kevin and Evie, uh, and he's preached at our church. Peter uh, asked me to join him in the baptisms of people in Israel in the Jordan River. So it was really cool. Him and I got to stand in the Jordan, and just those on the tour who wanted to get baptized would come. And there must have been about 20 people. It's one of the coldest days in my life, believe it or not, because standing in water for an hour and a half is cold, let's <laughs> just say it that way. And uh, we were in the water, and this one woman in particular stood up and gave her testimony before she got baptized, and it was powerful. Like, it brought tears to my eyes. And, I, and as, as she was speaking, it was like the Lord was saying to me, this woman needs to be an evangelist. Her stories needs to be told. She could draw so many people to the Lord through the power of what God did. So I walked up to her after the baptisms were done, and I took her aside in the tour, and I said, I said, Georgette, I said, your story is amazing. I said, I actually believe that God wants to use you as an evangelist. And we got talking, and I just left it. Probably like six hours later or something like that on the tour, I'm walking on my own, and she comes up to me, and she goes, uh, Andrew, uh, can I ask you a question? And I said, yeah. She goes, what's an evangelist? <laughs> you know, we just use Christian words, and we just think they know what they mean. And so I said, oh, wow, Georgette. I said, here's what an evangelist is. And I said, well, you just were one, so let me explain what you just did. So in the Greek word, evangelist means one who announces glad tidings, comma, a preacher of the gospel, comma, a teacher of the Christian religion. So notice the three things that they have in common. Announce, preach, teach. It requires proclamation of what you believe and about who Jesus is and his way of life to lead people to Christ. Now, it's important to Genesis House because it's one of our three pillars in this church. 
If you go on our website and you look up vision of Genesis House, it says church planting. The goal here is not to become a church of 200, maybe even 150. It's to become two churches of 75 or three churches of 150. Because a pastor, if he's going to be involved in the, in the investment of near lives, he can't take care of 150 people. He can't do it. But if you have a small congregation, that person can invest his life into the life of others. So our goal is to replicate, to duplicate. That's the goal. So church planning. Number two, relational or discipleship. It's the investment of one's life into another with scripture at the center. And number three, relational evangelism. Intentionally building friendships with people who don't know Jesus in order to announce, teach, preach the truth concerning him. So today we're going to learn from Paul how to do that effectively. So let's read verse 19. For though I am not free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. The first thing I want you to notice here is two, the two words Paul uses to describe himself. He's free on the left hand, and he's a slave on the right hand. How do you reconcile these? Because they seem to be in contradiction to one another. How can you be a free and yet a slave, or a slave and yet free? Well, most likely, his reference to himself being free is set within the context of chapter 9 already. You see, Paul had made it clear in verses, like, verses 1 through 14 that he had the right to be paid for the work he did amongst the Corinthians. He was a proclaimer of the gospel. He should have been financially supported by the Corinthians. He says in 14, I also... Uh, the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So he had the right. But what did he do? He gave up that right. He never collected a dime for the Corinthians. Look in verse 15. I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. So on one side, Paul has the right to be paid, but he refuses that right. So if you refuse the right to be paid, you're no, under no obligation to the people you're ministering to. There's no contract between you. Right? Because it's, it's, it's just usually you get paid for services rendered. And so there's no, there's no obligation. He's under no one's authority except Jesus. But even though he had, so he's free from all men in that he didn't receive any financial support. However, even though he wasn't obligated to the Corinthians, he still made himself a slave to them. He used his freedom to still be obligated to, him, to them. How did he do that? He became a slave so that he would win more. Now, we need to define what it means to win more. Those familiar with the Bible know exactly what he means by this, and we can see the heartbeat of Paul here. But if we're not totally sure, we need to make it clear because it's a pervasive theme in this chapter. Five times the word win occurs. For those circulars and underliners, walk with me through this. Verse 19, you see the word win. Verse 20, you'll see the word win twice. Verse 21, you'll see the word win. And in verse 22, you'll see the word win. So what does it mean to win? What does that mean? He clearly defines it in verse 22. He says, to the weak, I became weak, that I might, might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may be all means save some. In the category of winning, it's to save people. 
So you see the heartbeat of Paul. The whole purpose behind this self-imposed slavery was to bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The money was irrelevant. The money was irrelevant. He had a mission. He had a purpose. He was serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless if he got paid or not, he could not help himself but share the gospel with other people. He was a slave to Jesus Christ, and that affected the way he was a slave to others. Now, because that's so key for us then, the self-imposed slavery, we need to understand what that meant. What does it mean to become a slave to all people? Well, he clearly defines it in verse 22 again. He says, I become all things to all men. To be a slave to other men is to become all things to other men. Verse 22, that's the clincher. So let me just be clear what that is not. It's not talking then about heading into areas of sin or you compromise the, the truth of the scriptures or the commandments of Jesus. So for example, if I have a bunch of secular friends that love to party and get drunk every weekend when they watch hockey, I don't have to go and join them and get drunk every weekend to become all things to them. I stay sober in that environment, but I can still watch the hockey game. Or if I have friends that love to tell jokes and poke fun at other people and gossip is their way of sort of like building themselves up, yes, I can enter into that arena and I can enjoy them as people and I can sort of um, be part of their, their, their community. But when it comes to things like gossip, I refrain from doing so. So again, being thing, all things to all men is not to be taken literally. It's to say there's a, there's a caveat we do not compromise the ethics and morality of Jesus' teachings. But what is he saying then? Here's what's key, church. Whatever social situation Paul found himself in, he was willing to put his own personal preferences aside in order to accommodate the lifestyle of others. I'll say that again. He was willing to, in any social situation he was faced with, put his own personal preferences aside whether it be religious, social, or cultural, to accommodate the lifestyle of others. In my words, he was a social chameleon. He was a social chameleon. And he did so to remove any barriers that may have been a hindrance to sharing the gospel with people. Ben Witherington says it this way. Paul, in short, is flexible in food, clothing, and the like not in his theological or ethical principles. So he gives four examples of how he, or who he did this with. So let's look at the first groups here. He says he would do this with the Jews in verse 20. He would do those, do it with those under the law in verse 20. He'd do it to those without the law in verse 21 and he'd do it to those he described as being weak in verse 22. So we have four categories of people in which Paul would put aside his own preferences to adopt the lifestyle of others. So we need to look at these groups. We're going to lump the first two together because they will fall. They're different, but they're the same, and you'll understand what I mean in a second. So let's read verse 20 as we look at the Jews and another group called those under the law. 
He says in verse 20, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Some people who write on this and teach on this don't see a distinction between the first two. They say, they say because Jews had the Mosaic law, they're the same group as being under the law. But I actually see these as two distinct groups, and I'll explain here in a second why. You see, the Jews, I believe, was Paul, Jew, the Paul was distinguishing between the Jews and those under the law by those of ethnic descent. So if you were a Jew, it was a Jew by lineage. It was a Jew by being a blood, like in your bloodline. Like you could attribute your, your uh, heritage to a tribe, for example. So naturally, if you were Jewish in the ethnic descent, you would naturally fa- follow the, the Mosaic law. So it's Jews of ethnicity. Those under the law, though, I would suggest are those who are not of Jewish descent, but still subscribe fully to the Jewish way of life, embracing the law. I'd re- these are referred to in the Bible as proselytes. These were people who would convert from their previous religious ways and social way of life to embrace Judaism. And we can see distinction between them in Acts 13, 43. Paul says this, or Luke actually writes this, Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Notice the context is in the synagogue life. Who's in the synagogue? Jews and proselytes. Why make a distinction if they're the same group? Because the proselytes would have been Gentile people who got circumcised, followed the Mosaic law, and embraced the Jewish customs. So how did Paul then do this with these two groups? How did he become like a Jew, and like a, a proselyte? Well, he doesn't tell us here. So we have to go other places in the Bible. Well, no doubt it was in the area of food and drink. No doubt in the area of food and drink. Look at chapter 10, verse 31. Paul, at the end of his conclusion here, says this, 10.31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. So again, he's saying, in the area of food and drink, Give no offense to anyone. Choose according to the environment that you're in. And that makes sense in our context. Chapter 9 is sandwiched between chapter 8 and 10. And what's the content of chapter 8 and 10 in Corinth? Meat sacrificed to idols, drink sacrificed to idols. And he's saying there's a way to use your Christian liberty when to eat and when to drink. And he's very clear on those commands. And that's a whole other sermon series and a whole other subject matter. But there's another really key example of becoming to a Jew like a Jew elsewhere in the Bible. And what's amazing about this, it was not so much what it cost Paul, but what it cost another who joined him in ministry. Look at this in Acts 16. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. You have to understand Paul's custom. Paul, when he walks into a new city, what's the first place he goes to? 
He's called to the Gentiles. Where's the first place he goes in every city? The synagogue. He goes to the Jewish people. Once he gets thrown out of their doors and out their windows, which happened every time, he would then go and speak to the Greeks, the Gentiles. If Timothy comes with a Jewish mother and a Greek father and he's uncircumcised, guess who's not allowed in the synagogue? Timothy. But if Timothy gets circumcised, guess who's allowed in the synagogue? Timothy, because the Jews will accept him. You talk about becoming all things to all men. <laughs> you think you got it bad by changing your preferences if you like mechanics or fishing. Try getting circumcised for, for someone else to get in here. Especially as an adult. There's a reason why they do it at the eighth day. It's the least sensitive time of your life. But again, why is this so important? Did you know what happened in Acts chapter 15 before this event? The Jerusalem council. Paul and Barnabas and all the guys end up to Jerusalem. They're arguing and discussing what does it mean to be saved? It's the most important ever council ever in the church. What does it mean to be saved? And what is their conclusion in Acts chapter 15? Circumcision is not required to be part of the people of God. It's faith in Christ and the Gentiles erupt in absolute pleasure with that, with that announcement. Faith in Jesus, no requirements of the law. And yet one chapter later, Timothy gets circumcised, not for salvation, so that he could fulfill Paul's teaching in chapter, in verse 20, that he, be, he, that he would become a Jew so that he might win Jews. So powerful. I have the right not to get circumcised, but for the sake of Jesus Christ, I will. You talk about sacrifice for the cause of the gospel. His rights were secondary to the cause of Christ. His rights were secondary to the cause of Christ. May this be said of you. May this be said of me. The third group were the Gentiles, verse 21. To those who were without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without the law. The reason I say this is the Gentiles is clear from other places in the Bible. Look in Romans 2.14 how those are who are described who are without the law. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, <laughs> do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves. Pretty clear in 21 who Paul's talking about. They're the Gentile people. They don't have the Mosaic law, but they do have God's moral law written in their hearts. So, again, how did he become a Gentile in Gentile territory? Well, no doubt, again, it was in food and drink. Again, chapter 8 and chapter 10 uh, makes this clear. He's, talk, he's talk, speaking to the Corinthians who were Gentile. And so that's one category. But another one is, uh, another one is actually, um, well, actually, I'll say more about that in a second here. In Galatians chapter 2, we see food being an issue, Right? That was the reason why Paul got a rebuke of Peter. Peter used to eat with Gentiles. He knew that he didn't have to get rid of Gentile food to be right with God and to be right with people. But when the Jewish leaders came to Antioch to meet him in Galatians chapter 2, he was fearful of those people and what they thought. So he stopped eating with the Gentiles and started associating only with Jews. 
So Paul found out about this and rebuked him publicly in front of the whole church and said, you, Peter, have it wrong. What are you doing? You know food's not an issue. Again, Paul clearly, by his rebuke of Peter, knew that food was not an issue and ate Gentile food when he was with them. So he would have not eaten kosher, to make it straight up. But there's another one I think it's really important, and it's found in Acts 17. Paul goes to Athens in his hopes, again, to bring people to Christ. And we see him outside of the synagogue in the marketplaces. And what's he doing there in Acts 17? He's studying their idols. He's listening to and debating Greek philosophers. But one of the key things for me in his defense of the gospel is what he says in verse 28. He says, for in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. What's he doing? He's quoting who? Not the Old Testament. They're Greek poets. They're literature. They're authors. Paul's not afraid to mix it up and learn other people's religions, to study other people's beliefs. You don't get defiled, church, by learning about Mormonism. If you open up the Book of Mormon and read it, or Jehovah Witness, or the Freemasons, or whatever, you don't get defiled by reading that. Satan's not going to enter your heart and like, throw you off. <laughs> You're doing it for the sake of like reading to learn about their beliefs so that you can minister to them. Paul mixed it up. He wasn't afraid to familiarize himself with other people's customs, their culture, and beliefs. Verse 22, the fourth group. He says, to the weak I become weak, that I may win the weak. I, be I become all things to all men. Who are the weak? Well, let me say who I believe it's not. You will hear some people teach this, that the weak are the people who are weak in conscience. Because in chapter 8, he talks about the weak and the strong in terms of conscience towards food sacrifice to idols. Here's why this, I don't believe it's them. The context of this is winning people to Christ who are not saved. The weak in chapter 8 are already Christians. <laughs> so I, can't, I don't think it's a weak in conscience. Who are they? I don't know for sure. But I will give you who I think it probably is. And turn with me to chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27. One twenty-six. I believe that the weak here are the Corinthians as a whole, or other people in the, in the Greco-Roman world like them. Those who are generally lower in status in society, and those who are probably at a lower level of comprehension in terms of like wisdom of the day. Those of lower in status and those who are sort of lower, more simple in comprehension. Look at 126. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, but not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. All right? Now look at chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of, and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So Paul's making it clear. I didn't come to you with superiority of speech. I didn't come to t- talk to the super intellects. I came to give it to the sort of more the, the sim- simplistic of people. So no doubt, Paul brought his level of speech and his intellect, because he was a brilliant, brilliant man. A brilliant man. But he brought it down to make it known in a palatable way. The gospel was palatable to the people. He simplified it. He didn't try to impress people with what he knew. He made it simple for people to understand. And why? Verse 22, verse B so that I may, by all means, save some. Salvation of others. But here's the key, church. It wasn't the physical act itself of laying a, his side as preferences to accommodate others that, uh, that save people. It's what the act produced. So it wasn't, I didn't eat pork, so therefore they, they're, they're going to get saved. It was what the the not eating of pork produced in terms of ability to speak to them. You see, when he did these things, it enabled him to gain the right to speak into people's lives that he was witnessing to. By choosing to do these things, it gave him the right to speak into people's lives that he was witnessing to. Paul recognized if he flexed his muscle and his right to personal preferences and freedoms, he'd close the door. But for the sake of Jesus, he put those things aside. And he would have had his preferences just like you and I. Food preferences, literature preferences, clothing preferences, social customs, the music he liked, the people that he preferred to hang out with. But he put it all aside to win people to Jesus. So I have one lesson for you today, but lots in application. An effective strategy for winning people to the Lord is to lay aside our cultural, social, religious preferences in order to embrace the lifestyles of the secular people around us. You lay aside your cultural, social, religious preferences in order to embrace the the lifestyles of those around you who don't know Christ. I'm not talking about compromising obedience to Jesus in ethics and morality. These are not matters of ethical or theological essentiality, but in every other area, we are to be flexible. We are to be flexible. In a world which says, my rights need to be met, and I'm an individual, and I have the right to do this and to do that and to think that, Jesus Christ says, not in your life. You get that thinking right out of your head. You are a slave to Jesus Christ. Paul is your authority as well as an apostle. And we are to imitate him. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So here's where the rubber hits the road, church. Number one, first of all, This is a radical way to approach evangelism. Radical. 
You notice what it's not about? It's not about a presentation. The four spiritual laws, the Roman road. It's not about inviting people to church. Whoa, the Holy Grail. Now, I'm not saying don't invite people to church. Please do. But Paul's not saying that here. He's saying you, when you leave those doors, become the bridge to lead people to Christ to invite them into this building. (laughs) Again, please invite them, but don't negate your responsibility before the Lord. Second, there are several obstacles in our way, in our culture, that fight against our ability to do this. And I'm going to give them to you now. Number one, my words, Christian circle syndrome. Christian circle syndrome. I have no proof of this, but I've heard it numerous times from people. They say the average person within seven years becoming a Christian has no longer any secular friends. Within seven years of being a Christian has no secular friends. (laughs) We are not to give up secular relationships when we come to Christ. There may be some people we have to disassociate to because they might pull us into sin, but that doesn't mean give, us all, give up all secular relationships. If we're going to live like Paul, we're going to have to be in friendships and relationships with non-Christian people and seek to develop them on a rich level. We're going to have to seek these people out. Number two, time. People are really busy in Okotoks. Really, really, really busy. Church, we need to make room in our schedules. Rethink the values that we have and the activities we do and really understand what's important. I'm not making fun of people because I, am, I love athletics. I just love them. Like, I mean, I was in my day a pretty decent athlete. Not anymore, I can barely get out of bed, but when I was 19, look out. When I stand before the God, and he said, and I, and, you know, on judgment day, and he says, Andrew, you know, I was sure impressed with you. Over the 10 year period, you improved your slap shot from a 45 miles an hour to 65 in the, in the span of 10 years. Do you think that's the conversation we're gonna have? Or if he says this, in 10 years, Andrew, I've seen you, through your willingness to serve me, bring two individuals to the Lord through your consistent love towards them. What do you think is going to get rewarded? I'm not saying quit hockey. I'm not saying go to camps. But get your priorities straight. Let's get our priorities straight. By the way, if you're shooting 45 mile an hour slap shots at 19, you should just quit hockey. <laughs> no, no, no amount of camps is going to do you any good. Um, our judgmental tendencies. Oh my goodness, church. We often deem people more important, or we deem ourselves more important than others. And therefore, we deem people not worthy of our pursuit because of our superiority. The people we usually pursue are those who are most like us. 
Laura, how easy it is to love other people that like dance. How many people would you have interest in that, like, you know, loved uh, to play piano? Mark, you love people that love mechanics. Easy, right? What if they, you know, enjoyed sewing? <laughs> Maybe you like sewing too. Actually, you do like sewing, so that's a bad example. <laughs> but you get the point. I mean, there's just so many examples we can have here of things that we prefer and not. We're going to pursue the, or most, those who are most like us. But you know what? We often forget that you and I, one time, were that awkward person to another Christian at some point. The people that were Christians who, who loved you before you were a Christian had different interests in you, but they still took interest in you despite the differences. And you're grateful to them for it. When you look at others, remember the cross was for everyone. It was for them as well as you. You're not more loved than Je by Jesus than they are. Put your preferences aside and your judgmental tendencies in order to embrace these people. The reason why they're all messed up is because they don't have the Lord. What else do you expect? I don't like they tell dirty jokes. Well, what do you expect? I don't like they, listen, like they listen to this and watch this and do this. What do you expect? <laughs> How about our personal preferences? Food, hobbies, music, literature, books, sleep habits. You know, oh, I can't minister to those people. They're night owls, and I'm up earlier in the morning all the time. I can't do that. That's for someone else. I'm just going to continue my sleep schedule. Really? Have a nap during the day so you're alert at night. Like, whatever. We have to accommodate other people's preferences. I uh, meet Dan and Bryce every week for time of accountability to us as pastors. And Bryce told me he met a homosexual man on the street about uh, four or five months ago. And he was walking a dog. And so Bryce said, oh, nice dog. And they got talking. And what do you do? And Bryce says, I'm a pastor. And, and the, this fellow says, I'm a counselor. So they get talking. And they agree to go, to co go for coffee. They agree to go for coffee and they have a great conversation and they start sharing how they counsel people differently and how they, how they approach life. And uh, the guy says, gives him a book by Eckhart Tolle and it's about, uh, it's a new age book. And it's about basically becoming the best you you can be. And Dan or Bryce came to us at the study or our time together and he says, like, he goes, guys, I I read the first couple of pages. I can't take it. I can't handle it. It's just a bunch of garbage. I can't do this. And what was our counsel to him? You read it. You read it. You persevere. You read it. Because this is an open door for you to continue this relationship and have this conversation. And you walked away taking the, taking the advice. You're not going to get defiled by reading some mystic philosopher. God knows what you're up to. In Exclusion and Embrace, it's a book by Miroslav Wolf. 
He talks about the barriers that exist between people and how they need to get broken down. And he says this, do we have the will to give ourselves to others and welcome them and readjust our identities to make space for them? Good question. So, who has God placed in your life right now? Who's in your life right now that you could seek to win? Who are the natural relationships right in front of your eyes? Maybe it's someone you play on a ball team with. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. Who are the people right now that you can just list? Who's the Holy Spirit bringing to you right now? Names, people. You can pray that God uses you. Colossians 4 says that uh, you can pray and open up doors for conversations and for relationships. You want to know my two? You challenge, these two challenge me to the core. I have a fellow right now in my life who has the complete opposite lifestyle to me in terms of preferences and athletics. He loves to go canyoneering. He goes to canyons and the, and the glaciers, gets on his paddleboard and things like that in his wetsuits and floats down these freezing cold rivers between like these caves and stuff that he's uncovered in. Like he's just like, like it's claustrophobic tight areas. And he goes down these glacier waters underneath these canyons and doesn't, hopes he comes out the other end type stuff. Like it's just insane. I talked to him uh, just two days ago. He told me he went into the, um, into the Jasper area with three buddies. They had inflatable paddle boards. And um, what they chose to do was they stayed up all night to watch the stars and take pictures of the stars. And they slept on their paddle boards overnight until morning on these waters in their wetsuits. They, had, they didn't even have a tent with them. And every time I talked to him, he's like, Andrew, you should come. You should come. You should come. You should come. My favorite thing to do, my favorite holiday in my life was the beach in Mexico. And let's just put it that way. <laughs> but God's asking me constantly, when are you going to bite the bullet and go into those areas that you are uncomfortable with and unfamiliar with? Another one, one of my uh, friend, Jace has a friend right now whose family is friends with us. They are the king of impromptu. The king of impromptu. I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty flexible, but like they're really flexible. Janice likes to plan. She's more type A. She likes everything to be in order and set in stone. These, I get text messages all times of the day and all sorts of time. What are you doing right now? What are you doing right now? We're going camping. We're going to this picnic. We're going here. We're going there. We're going to the BMX track. You want to come over and play? All these things. And I try every time, as hard as I can, to make my schedule bend to theirs. And we, me and Jesus have constant conversations how we can make these relationships work. But you know what's really cool? Two weeks ago, he said to me, he goes, my son's been asking about church. He wants to go. And he goes, where do you go? And I said, actually, I'm the pastor of one. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. And he wants to go up to St. James on the corner on 32nd Street. I said, come to ours. 
He says, well, I'll think about it. So you can pray for that family that they show up in our church. So you're, again, I'll leave you with this. Are you willing to become a slave to all men? Are you willing to be a winner for the cause of Christ?